Good morning, Church of the Cross. I am thankful to share this time with you today. Um, and I'm very thankful for your director of children's formation, for Sarah's teaching on Matthew 14. I love how the Lord knits these things together because she highlighted for us the staggering miracle of our gospel passage today, which is so significant. And it's also not the primary thread I'll be pulling on our passage today. So we get to have two pieces of the puzzle highlighted in one service. Thank you, Sarah. In some parts of Ethiopia, much of the formerly lush lands have been cleared for agriculture, for raising and feeding livestock. If you saw a picture of these places, you'd see a few trees dotting the landscape. Um, but otherwise, you might see various shades of light brown, color of tahini with dots of darker brown, nutmeg-colored plots of land. Um, in the midst of this sea of beige browns lie these concentrated spaces of thick forests. These are the church forests of Ethiopia. A brief and beautiful video from Emergence magazine tells the story of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and their tradition to have a church set in a forest. That a church should look and the surroundings should look like they are set in Eden. Our gospel passage today is like that rich forest, a shot of green, of life, set against the mundanity of the way the world looks most of the time. Our passage begins with a significant phrase, however, when Jesus heard what had happened. So let's first turn to the sepia-colored scene from which the greenery of our passage erupts. What has happened? We have a story that seems a little bit like an aside, that news of Jesus has reached Herod, who, like a person who's seen a ghost, hears about what Jesus is doing and says, it's John the Baptist back from the dead. Then we have a sort of recent history flashback, and we pick up that thread of John the Baptist, who we know from earlier passages has been arrested. Herod has imprisoned him because John was loudly communicating that Herod should not have his brother's wife, Herodias, as his own. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because John was popular with them. So one day, Herod has a birthday party for himself, and Herodias' daughter dances for everyone. And Herod liked it so much, he promised to give her whatever she asked. Her mom gives her some advice, and she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod here is caught between a rock and a hard place. Don't do it, and you lose face. You lose power and possibly give some of your less loyal guests the whiff of weakness. Do it, and you risk upsetting the people. The former, for Herod, is a more fearful prospect, so he does what is asked. John's disciples retrieve his body, John's body, they bury it, and then this is what they go and tell Jesus. So in verse 13, this is what Jesus has heard. He's heard of the unjust death of his cousin and the disgusting display of his head by one of the rulers of the land. This is the landscape into which we enter our text today. 
an ecologist speaking on the biodiversity of the church forests of Ethiopia, says in the video that the relationships, the interactions between plants, between wildlife and fungi, that they are so complicated and sophisticated, you can't explain it all. And I think the same is true for our passage today. The amount of richness, the number of connections, they're astounding. So in our limited time today, with the beauty of the passage before us, we'll focus our eyes on three features of both the banquet of Herod and the banquet of Jesus. We'll focus our eyes on the guests, the festivities, and then the hosts, the rulers themselves. First, the guests. We don't get much information about Herod's guests other than Herodias and her daughter, but we know that Herod fears their opinion more than the wider public. It's not a leap to say these are powerful people, people that Herod either has as allies or wants as allies in power. It's doubtful these are just good friends whom Herod can be himself around. Otherwise, he could have said no to the request without fear. These are the elite and those seeking to be elite. They are people gathered not by their relationship to a particular person, though it would seem that way at a birthday party, but they're gathered by their relationship to power and society. And then we turn and look at the audience at Jesus's banquet. We see these are not guests by invitation. Jesus has heard this news and withdrawn to a solitary place. And here come crowds on foot from towns nearby. The crowd is large. The crowd has people in need of healing who would travel or their friends who would help them travel on foot a ways just to be near Jesus. There is no singular thing that defines this group. They are men and women and children. They are the sick and they are the healthy. There is no economic, no ritual or religious status, no ideology that unites them other than this. They want to be near Jesus and believe that being near him will make their lives better. So much so, they ignore the need for food. Imagine a day where everyone was so exciting for a morning meeting at your place of work that everyone, everyone forgot their lunch. People are just basking in post-meeting afterglow. <laughs> I don't think it's a thing. But, and they're just becoming aware that it's already 1 o'clock. I love that probably for some of us, this scenario about the forgotten lunch seems more implausible than feeding over 5,000 people with five <laughs> loaves of bread and two fish. These crowds in our passage were so focused on the goodness of meeting with Jesus, it was like they forgot to plan beyond that. And Jesus took these crowds and made them guests where he provided a meal. When these dissimilar people sat down in the grass and ate at Jesus' banquet, they became a people with Jesus in common. So we have our different guest lists. At Herod's, there are those who share societal status and connection to power. And we have at Jesus those who are disparate and desperate people who follow him. And then we turn to see what happens at these banquets. What are the festivities? At both Herod and Jesus' banquets, there are displays of power. 
On Herod's birthday party, there is a power displayed both in his ability to command entertainment and to make and keep powerful promises. His power performances are aimed at making Herod himself look powerful. They result, though, in trauma for the guests and the notion that they should call this trauma good. We don't hear about the food, but death is literally served on the only platter we hear about. It is a feast of injustice and death. At Jesus' banquet, we see something remarkably different. Yes, there are displays of power, but rather than power for the sake of appearances, it is power that comes from compassion. It is a feast that rather than serving trauma, serves healing. Rather than death, serves miraculous, abundant, life-giving nourishment. It's a display of power, not because Jesus wants people to think he's powerful. It's a display of power because Jesus is powerful. Margaret Thatcher famously said this very British quip, that being powerful is like being a proper lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. There are these displays of power at both feasts, but they couldn't be more different. One is a spectacle, and one is truly spectacular. One set of festivities leaves us disturbed, and the other offers assurance. And we take a turn from these festivities to look a little bit more closely at the hosts themselves. These men both have some form of power, and they both have motives. With Herod, he has power to rule, to kill, to imprison. He has the power of his wealth and status, the power to give favors. And it's, in fact, quite a boring portrait because he's a person who's a type of person we've seen throughout history. The power to rule, the power of wealth or position, in and of itself are not sinful, but when they go hand in hand with fear, as they often do, and they do in Herod's case, the ends are never good. Fear rules Herod, fear of John the Baptist, fear of people, fear of losing face, losing power. We have more than enough examples of Herod, whether they wield power that reaches far or whether they're the petty tyrants of our everyday lives. Jesus, on the other hand, is different. He has power over human bodies, the power to heal power over the material world, power even to multiply matter. Jesus is unlike any other man we have known to walk the earth. He has supernatural power. And not only does Jesus have power that is seemingly incompatible with our understanding of the material world, his motives are untouched by fear. In fact, Jesus in their passage shelves his plans of being alone And when he's met with crowds of people, instead of annoyance, he has compassion. His heart goes out to them. When it's getting late and it'd be easy to call it a day, he says, they do not need to go away. I think uh, if any of you out there are parents and have little ones and you have put them to bed and whether it's 5, 10, 30 minutes later, you hear the pitter-patter of little feet coming your way, How hard is it to say they do not need to go away (laughs) in that moment? Um, But he doesn't say that. He draws them in. He keeps them near. 
Consider this alongside earlier in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus didn't satisfy his own hunger in the desert by making stones into bread. He refused to satisfy his own hunger and yet draws near these people in need. His love of the Father, his love of people, these affections of his heart affect the activities he undertakes. This is a self-giving leader who cares deeply, meaningfully, and powerfully about people. It can be easy to look around at the sea of Herod-like feasts. Read any paper, go on social media, and there are endless tales of fear-based abuses of power, of people trying to gain and or keep power, of injustice and death served on a platter. It can be harder to see to experience the truly spectacular stories around us when there is so much worthy of lament. The spectacular, the feasts of Jesus, do sometimes feel like this patch of green in a deforested land, breathtakingly beautiful, but also it's tempting to think it's a mirage, that maybe it's a vision of what has happened since it did, according to our passage for today, or a vision of what will happen, since we know it will, according to other passages in Scripture. But is it a mirage? Are there really ways we can enter the church forest, enter the stories of Jesus' healing and hosting, of outposts of his love and abundance here and now, even when flanked by Herod's parties? If you just saw still shots from the video of Ethiopian church forests and didn't know the backstory, you might think these churches were creating forests, that they'd planted a few trees around their buildings in protests or maybe to shelter their idiosyncrasies, um, and that the real world, the real ecology, was treeless plains. But Church of the Cross, let us not mistake what is currently prevalent for what is most real. What you see most readily is not what is most inevitable. There is a power that gives life instead of takes it. There is a gathering that offers real healing, real sustenance instead of brokenness and terror. And there is a king who is worth forgetting your lunch for. A king who looks upon you, who looks upon this community with compassion. Let us draw near to this king. Let us draw near together as he meets us in ways that will likely not be the spectacles that we're saturated in, but in the truly spectacular ways of our powerful and good God. And let us pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you see us and your heart goes out to us. You heal us and you make us a people. That you feed us and you give us rest. May we feast today on the abundance you provide when we are often so keenly aware of our lack. Continue to make us a people who desperately seek you, who gaze at you, and know that you lovingly change everything. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.